Hey everybody, before we get started, I just wanted to jump on because we are so excited to announce that Restore Registration is officially open. We can't wait to be with you again this year. It's going to be on September 5th through 7th at the Mountain America Expo Center in Sandy, Utah. That's the evening of September 5th and then all day on the 6th and the 7th. Three days of incredible speakers, poets, musicians, and artists. We really think that what we have planned will blow you away again this year, so you won't want to miss it. Go to faithmatters.org slash restore for tickets and we'll see you there. Hey everybody, this is Aubrey Chavez from Faith Matters. When BYU professor Eric Huntsman was growing up, he spent time among the Catholics in Pittsburgh and the Baptists in Tennessee, and he came to love the different ways that other Christian denominations worshipped Jesus. And one of his favorite ways that other Christians worshipped was during Holy Week, the week leading up to Easter Sunday. Over the years, Eric began incorporating many Holy Week traditions into his spiritual practice, and he found that it helped him connect more deeply with the Savior and his atoning sacrifice. To help other Latter-day Saints who may be interested in learning more about Holy Week and developing ways of celebrating it, Eric, along with co-author Trevin Hatch, have recently published a book called Greater Love Hath No Man, a Latter-day Saint guide to celebrating the Easter season. In today's conversation, Zach Davis spoke with Eric about his journey as a disciple and scholar of Jesus, what traditional Holy Week commemoration looks like, and how Easter is a time that we can connect with our fellow Christian brothers and sisters. Eric Kunzman is a professor of ancient scripture at BYU, and in April of 2022, he began a two-and-a-half-year appointment as the academic director for the BYU Jerusalem Center, which is where he joined us for this conversation. After initially researching Roman history, Eric's scholarly efforts have focused on the life and ministry of Jesus in the New Testament Gospels, especially the Gospel of John. We're so excited to share this fascinating conversation with you, and we really hope that you enjoy it. And with that, we'll hand it over to Zach. We are here today with Professor Eric Huntsman, who was my professor at BYU. So this is a great treat to be back in the same space talking about these topics again. For, for those who don't know you or your research, could you share with us a little bit about who you are, where you grew up, how you came to study these things that you do, and especially what was it that led you to write this book that we're going to talk about today? Well, let me actually kind of back up and, and give my family background because that really informs or shapes who I am. I'm from a multi-generational Latter-day Saint family. My parents are both from Southern Utah, but neither my sister nor I ever lived in Utah. So we have kind of that cultural background without having you know, that particular complexity, right? So my sister and I were both born in Albuquerque. We moved to Syracuse, New York when I was five. We moved to Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania when, we were eight, when I was eight. I moved to Jackson, Tennessee when I was 16. I came to Provo for college, served a mission in Thailand, came back to Provo, finished college. And then I went to Philadelphia, the University of Pennsylvania for both my master's and my PhD. And I, I wanted to mention where I lived because it really has affected how I approach this particular subject. So between third grade and the middle of my junior year, I lived in Pittsburgh and most of my friends were Roman Catholics with a few Presbyterians thrown in. Then for my last year and a half school, I moved to the buckle of the Bible belt, as I like to say it. And my friends were Baptist and other born again Christians. So I always tell people that perhaps my preaching style I got from the Baptist, uh, my untrammeled love and enthusiasm for Jesus probably also comes from Tennessee. I wrote a book, Desert Book some years ago called Worship, Adding Depth to Your Devotion. And in it, although I kind of trace the history of our different modes of worship, whether it be prayer or ritual slash ordinances, holy places, sacred time, sacred text, or music, I would also show how other communities did that. Because I'm really a fan of Kirster Stendhal's proposition of holy envy, that we don't necessarily need to accept the practices or beliefs of other communities, but we can be inspired by them. 
So here in Jerusalem, when I hear that prayer call five times a day, it reminds me that I should be praying not just morning, noon, and night, but I should have a prayer in my heart all the time. When I go to the Western Wall and I see just the fierceness of the devotion of of our Jewish sisters and brothers as they're worshiping, I think, wow, I should take this more seriously. The other thing that was deeply seated in me besides the evangelical fervor for Jesus, this real respect for holy practice, as we see in some liturgical churches, was my mom. I learned everything I really needed to know about Jesus, not the details, but the basics from mom. You know, she read me Bible stories. She read me Book of Mormon stories. And my mother was a musician. And that's another part of me that your, your listeners may be interested in is I'm not a professional musician, but I've sung my entire life. In fact, I've sung for 18 years in the Tabernacle Choir, and I love music. And mom was always our ward and stake and regional choir director. And she would have the most awesome Christmas and Easter sacrament meetings ever. Even if that ward choir was singing way beyond its pay grade. I mean, she'd make us sing Messiah, and we had no business doing that. So those are the kind of things that made me very sensitive of this subject. First of all, a fierce passion for Jesus. You know, so I call him Jesus, not just the Savior. Just name him. And then this respect for tradition and and seeing how rituals and traditions can be really meaningful to people. And then the musical component. Those are things that are just part of who I am. So let's get back to the boring stuff. I was an undergraduate major in pre-med. I was doing chemistry pre-med and flamed out. I just calculus and I never got it. And so after my freshman year, I knew I was changing my major from chemistry to something else. So I just loaded the schedule with all the GE stuff, biology, physical science, American heritage. And as I looked at that schedule, I thought, oh my gosh, that's boring. I'm going to die. So I pulled out the honors catalog and I saw that Hugh Nibley, who was emeritus faculty at the time, was teaching a single Pearl Great Prize class. So I signed up for that. And then another professor who became a good friend, Wilfred Griggs, was teaching a Greek through the New Testament class. And I thought, wow, I want to do this. And in that semester, it was five credits of accelerated Greek and two credits of New Testament. Seven credit class. We learned enough Greek to get through the Gospel of John that semester. And so I had a new major. It was going to be classical Greek. The classical world just absorbed me, and I just loved the history. And so I ended up doing my master's and PhD at the University of Pennsylvania in ancient history, Greek and Roman history, kind of equally. Anyway, I got a job at BYU and came back in 94 and taught classics for nine years. And that's when you and I crossed paths. In 2003, I made a lateral move across campus and accepted a position in ancient scripture so I could pursue my, my love of the New Testament. Thank you so much, Eric, for, for sharing about your, your life and your background. Your new book is called Great I Love Hath No Man, A Latter-day Saint Guide to Celebrating the Easter Season. And knowing that you had these powerful experiences with other Christian faiths makes it, to me, a little more clear why you were the right person to think about this topic and to maybe help our own tradition engage more deeply with some of the traditions that that other Christian faiths have to celebrate Easter. I mean, just to show how ignorant I was, when I moved to Cambridge a decade ago, I had a colleague who came to work one day and I said, Hey, you you you've got you got something on your, your forehead, Jessica. And I quickly learned, you know, this was Ash Wednesday and I had just embarrassed myself. And I think that's not totally uncommon that we just, we don't as a tradition um, really know about this other way of 
of commemorating and celebrating Holy Week. Um, so I thought it, it might be really just helpful for our audience, many of whom will be more experienced with this, but for those who are not, how would you characterize the most traditional forms of Holy Week commemoration? I think, Zach, maybe the best way to do that is to give a little bit of the history of it. Because it it's, comes out in different forms in the Greek Orthodox tradition, the Roman Catholic tradition, etc. Uh, I'm in Jerusalem right now, and I'm looking, it's dark here, but I'm looking at the Dome of the Rock, and just to my left is the Mount of Olives. So I had written a version of this book in 2011 called God So Loved the World, The Final Days of the Savior's Life. And, you know, I guess it had a pretty good run. It was my first attempt to kind of feel through this. And it went out of print. And I had met a fellow in the library. He's the ancient studies librarian, Trevin Hatch. And Trevin's really an amazing guy. I mean, he's very well trained. He's doing a second PhD right now. And his one of his specialties is historical Jesus in the Jewish context. And he actually approached me shortly before the pandemic broke out and said, hey, I understand God's love of the world has gone out of print. I've looked through it. It's really great. Have you ever thought about reprinting it or revising it? And I hadn't. You know, I had a lot on my plate, was working on other projects. And so he actually convinced me to talk to the director of the Religious Studies Center, Scott Esplin, who's now our dean of religion, by the way. And Scott thought it was a great idea. Well, one of the things Trevin suggested, he said, why don't we have a section on Palm Sunday in the Christian tradition, Good Friday in the Christian tradition? And as we were kind of researching that, I stumbled upon this really intriguing figure named Agaria. And Sister Agaria was a Spanish nun in the late 4th century. So here I am in Jerusalem looking at the Temple Mount and the Mount of Olives, and Agaria describes what these places were like at the end of the fourth century, when she is a Spanish pilgrim, and it took weeks and months for her to get here, came, and she came at Easter time. So she not only went to the sites where Jesus had done things or was believed to have done things, she chronicled how Christians were remembering them. She actually started before Palm Sunday. She says, we went over the Mount of Olives to the other side of Bethany on the Saturday before, the Sunday before Easter. And read John 11 and the story of the raising of Lazarus. You know, when Lazarus died, we all groaned, and then we all cried. And then when Jesus came and told Martha that he was the resurrection and the life, we, we all said amen. And then when Jesus called Lazarus out of the tomb, we all cheered and wept with joy. And then the next day, we went on the Mount of Olives, and we got branches, and we waved them and said Hosanna, and, and the bishop got on a donkey like he was Jesus, and we reenacted the triumphal entry. And she laid out how that soon, okay, this is late 4th century, so 380s, not even 400 years after Jesus, people weren't just remembering what he said and did in Scripture, they were reenacting it. And one of the things I love about being in the Holy Land is we've got this confluence of, of holy space and sacred time, you know, and so it's really a powerful, powerful thing. So that's how the observance of Holy Week began. Started, first of all, with just three days. Thursday night to Friday night, Friday night to Saturday night, and then Saturday night to Easter morning, what they called the Triduum, the three days. And that was a religious feast or observance. But by the time of Agaria, they had added on the days before. And of course, there are 40 plus days added before that as a preparatory period called Lent. So what I learned kind of by osmosis when I lived in Pittsburgh, what my Catholic and Episcopalian and Lutheran friends were doing 
goes all the way back at least to the late 4th century. And it was a very sincere way to draw closer to Jesus and really identify with what he said and did the last days of his life and how meaningful what happened in Gethsemane and on the cross and in the empty tomb was. So this has become a very rich part of what we call high church practice or liturgical church's observance. And Latter-day Saints, that's not very familiar at all. You know, our real ordinances and rituals are in the temple. They're of a very specific variety. I mean, our sacrament is as ritual as we get. A prayer that has to be said the right way, has to be administered the right way, passed this right way. Otherwise, our prayers and our singing and certainly our preaching becomes kind of free form. But there may be a reason for that. There may be a historical and cultural reason for that. It's because the earliest Latter-day Saints, Joseph Smith, Brigham Young, their associates were New England Protestants, particularly Puritans. And the Puritans were the ones who thought the Church of England hadn't gone far enough with the Protestant Reformation. And they thought everything that had to do with saints or observance or feasts or festivals or imagery of any kind was, you know, popish. It was Catholic and, and we don't want that. You know, even though our Baptist friends use crosses on their church now, our, our friend Robert Millett, who used to be my dean, he wrote a book called What Happened to the Cross. And he actually pointed out to me, he said, Baptists didn't pick up the cross until the early 1900s because they were part of this Reformed tradition that just didn't have any imagery. So Larry Saints come, at least their early leaders and members, come from a group on one end of the Reformed Protestant spectrum that didn't mark sacred time, was careful until we got temples with holy places, and certainly wasn't marking holidays. You know, the Puritans didn't even celebrate Christmas, and would that be a loss? So I, I, this is kind of unfamiliar to us, but for people who come from the traditional Christian channel, it's really meaningful. And I only got this, as I said, by osmosis. My buddy Keith took me to Mass when I was 16. I learned something was up when I was eight in elementary school, when we always had fish on Friday. And I actually said, oh, fish sticks again. Why do we always have fish on Friday? And one of my little friends said, well, you know, certainly on Good Friday, but a lot of Fridays we like to remember. This is when Jesus died. I went home and I asked my mother, this is how ignorant I was. I said, mom, what's so good about Good Friday? Jesus died on that day. You know? And she had to explain to me, you know, well, her explanation was it was good because what Jesus did saves us and takes us back to Heavenly Father. Only later did I find out that just like, Goodbye means go with God. Good Friday actually means God's Friday. It's the day when God reconciled the world to himself through his son. Some of my Catholic friends didn't go to school on Good Friday. So I was aware something was going on. And then like you, I found out about Ash Wednesday, which was the first day of what we call the Lenten preparatory period. Ashes to ashes, dust to dust. You are mortal. You will go to the grave. And if it weren't for Jesus, you'd stay there, right? And the whole idea of Lent by the way, Lent is more than 40 days. It's 40 days of fasting, but you don't fast on Sunday because that's a feast. So if you've ever if you've ever counted back from Good Friday and the 40 days didn't work out to Ash Wednesday, that's why. So you end up having more than 40 days. But the 40 number is constant because it represented Jesus in the wilderness for 40 days. Jesus prepared for his ministry by fasting and praying and seeking God for 40 days. And so a lot of these liturgical traditions they do that to prepare for Easter. They want to be prepared to, to share in Jesus's atonement as he prepared for his ministry. 
So could you take us through the traditional Holy Week commemorations and also maybe share how you personally celebrate during this time? So one of the things that Trev and I added in Greater Love Hath No Man that I didn't have in God's Love of the World, which just started Palm Sunday, was backing up to what I called Jesus on the road to Jerusalem. Weeks, perhaps months before he and his disciples got to Jerusalem that last time, the pattern was established and he started to prepare them for his final sacrifice. So all the way in the north part of this country, at Caesarea Philippi, he asked Peter, whom do men say that I am? And we know how this goes. In Mark 8, he just says, thou art the Christ. And it's the first time in the entire gospel anyone has called Jesus the Christ. Everyone just calls him Jesus until Peter says, you are the anointed one. Matthew says, thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Immediately after that, Jesus gives the first of what he calls his passion predictions. We're going to Jerusalem where the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and the scribes and the elders, and he will be judged and he will be killed and on the third day he'll rise again. And then as he and the disciples walk from the north part of the Holy Land, down through Galilee, down the Jordan Valley, and then up from Jericho, he does that two more times. So because greater love hath no man is a scriptural treatment, that's what we discuss. And so we let our readers know this is how other Christians try to get ready. So what can you do? Now, I don't suggest they do it 40 days before. I suggest they just do it the week before. That the week before Holy Week, they can just read those Peter's confession as he's in Philippi on Sunday. And then the Passion Predictions on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. And then on Thursday, he's healing a blind Bartimaeus who says, you're the son of God, I'm going to follow you. You know, you can just take some time. You're going to read your personal scripture study anyway, and you're going to read, a lot of us do with our families, just make that your scripture reading for that day. And then discuss, what does it mean that Jesus is the Christ? What does it mean to have a testimony? What does it mean to understand that he's going to suffer, die, and rise again for us? And then we threw into it, and this isn't from the Catholic tradition at all. I picked this up from the Eastern Orthodox tradition. They celebrate something called Lazarus Saturday, which is the Saturday before Palm Sunday. And it focuses on the Lazarus story. How after Jesus had told his disciples three times he was going to die, he found out that one of his best friends had died. And you know the whole Lazarus story and him calling him forth from the tomb. And as I mentioned, Agaria said, we went and reenacted that. And I think that's a beautiful thing to read right before Palm Sunday. Because you know how the story is going to end. You're not going to be too heartbroken because you know he's going to come forth the grave just like Lazarus was. And there's also this beautiful scene that to celebrate Lazarus's rising from the dead, his sisters have a special supper for Jesus. And Martha serves and Mary comes in and anoints his feet. And it's this wonderful sign of her recognizing him not only as her king, but he says, she's doing it for my burial. She, better than the male disciples, understands he's come to die. So here's some things, as Larry saying, so that we could do, just read the text a week before, or read the story of Lazarus in John 11 and the Supper of Bethany in John 12, just the day before Palm Sunday. But then it becomes fun when you get to Palm Sunday, because here we have really powerful, dramatic episodes, and it's particularly powerful because you'll be marking them, reading them, thinking about them on the same day as so many other Christians are, and there's a power to that. Because Christmas and Easter give us a chance to find out what we have in common with Christians, not how we're different. And when my kids were little, we actually walked around the yard waving branches and our neighbors thought we were back crazy. It, it actually took it, it's, its shape from something our family had been doing for Christmas. Every day in December, we have an evening Christmas devotional where we read a Christmas story, usually a sappy story, you know, Christmas kind of story. And then we read a scripture 
And then we sing a Christmas carol. And then we have family prayer. And so I thought, well, why can't you do that in Holy Week? Right. And so Palm Sunday is a wonderful way to kind of start that on a more grand scale than just reading a few passages in Mark and then the story of Lazarus, et cetera. Although, by the way, our family, we actually bake little Lazarus rolls on Lazarus Saturday. Uh, it's called Lazarakia, these little cinnamon rolls that look like a guy shrouded with two clothes for eyes. And so as we make them, my kids would say, what is this? This is Lazarus. And we bake them. We'd say, Lazarus came out of the tomb, and then we eat them, right? I mean, but you know, you might have Christmas treats or frosting Christmas cookies as part of a Christmas observance. So what's wrong with making Lazarus rolls or hot cross buns on Easter, on Good Friday? And, you know, some people say, oh, what do you think about Easter candy and Easter baskets? Should we get rid of that? Is it too pagan? No. If it's something that makes the holiday fun and attractive for your children, there's no reason not to do it as long as you take the opportunity to discuss the symbolism. Yeah, the Easter buddies are just like Santa Claus, and that makes the holiday fun. But what we're really celebrating is Jesus coming forth from the tomb like a chick from an egg, you know? And and I think making fun holiday practices and traditions part of this, except on Good Friday. I'm pretty serious on Good Friday. But for the other days, it's a great way to enjoy the holiday and teach children and actually reinforce your own faith. And what about the days after Palm Sunday? Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday are kind of empty days in the liturgical calendar. They might be called Holy Monday, Holy Tuesday, Holy Wednesday. I think the Greek Orthodox call them Great Monday, Great Wednesday, Tuesday, Great Wednesday. But they don't have as many things to do as Palm Sunday, the Thursday with Gethsemane and the Last Supper and Good Friday and, and Easter morning. But Agaria said they did do something. This Spanish nun, I'm going back to my friend, Sister Agaria. She said, you know, we read about Jesus teaching in the temple. Or we read about Jesus going up the Mount of Olives and prophesying to four of his disciples how he would come again and how that reassured them that even though he's going to be dead, he'd come again and he'd finally be the king they wanted the first time, right? And then she mentioned, we talked about the anointing at Bethany not by Martha of Jesus' feet, but of an unnamed woman of his head. And so we actually gave those days, relatively empty days in the liturgical calendar, their own chapters. And so we lay out the teachings in the temple. And some of those parables, you may not have known how they connected to Jesus' sacrifice, but if you put them in the dramatic timeline, you know, suddenly the parable of the laborers in the vineyard, you know, makes sense. Or when Jesus is preaching about the sheep and the goats, and he's talking about the second coming, it makes sense when you realize that, say, on Tuesday of his last week, he went on the Mount of Olives, and he had just told his disciples, see that great temple, not one stone is going to be left on the other. And they're like, okay, well, you're the king. Are you the one who's going to do that? He's like, well, no, let me tell you. There are going to be all these things, and one day I'll come again in glory. So we put that in the Tuesday chapter of the book, and I'll tell you how we make that a connection in our family practice. What our family does, we read about Mark 13 and the Mount of Olives discourse, and we talk about how confused and frightened and confused and just shaken up Peter and James and John and Andrew and all the rest would have been when Jesus died on the cross. They thought he was going to be a king that was going to kick out the Romans. But then they remembered, oh, Jesus said he was going to be a king at the end. He was going to come in power and glory at the end. And so we then talk about how excited we are for Jesus to come again. And when our kids are younger, we sing, I wonder when he comes again from the primary songbook. Or now we sing, come thou king of kings or something. And then suddenly what happened on Palm Sunday just two days before makes more sense. 
yeah, they're recognizing him as a king coming in Jerusalem, but what that's really symbolizing is how excited we're going to be when he comes at the end of time. We may be waving palm branches, my students and I, in a week and a half here in Jerusalem and remembering Jesus coming in Jerusalem the first time. But what we're really looking forward to is how we're going to cheer and clap and hopefully be caught up in the air to meet him when he comes the second time. And let me tell you about the Wednesday. A lot of the Holy Week chronologies that I looked at when I was first doing this as a young bishop and trying to help my ward get ready for Easter had no events listed for Wednesday. And then I found out from one of my Catholic friends, they called it Spy Wednesday. I'm like, Spy Wednesday, what's up with that? They said, yeah, that was the, that was the day when the priests decided they were going to conspire to capture and kill Jesus. And then Judas, dang him, he went and took the money. And so they said, yeah, go look in the Gospel of Mark. And sure enough, there it was in Mark. But what was between those two dark kind of conspiratorial events was this beautiful, beautiful scene. I've already mentioned Mary anointing Jesus, this is Mary Bethany anointing Jesus' feet before Palm Sunday. Here an unnamed woman comes in and anoints his head. And, and of course, the disciples, and in John it was, you know, it's Judas, but the other one, the disciples say, she's wasting all this money, she'd be giving the poor. And Jesus says, no, she's doing a good thing for me. She knows I'm about to die. In other words, this woman has a testimony of my atoning work, and you, you brothers just aren't getting it yet. So wherever this gospel is preached, this is going to be told, this woman has done this for me. I remember when I first started looking at this back in 1996, I thought, hallelujah, I have been alive for 36 years at that point, and I have never heard anyone give a talk in church about this woman. And yet Jesus himself said, wherever this gospel is preached, you're going to talk about this story. So let me tell you how that has become practice in the Huntsman home. We read the story about the priest conspiring. We read the story about the woman. We read the story about Judas. And I say, how do those two dark conspiratorial episodes frame or affect how you read the story? And the answer is like, well, we want to talk about the good story, not the bad story, right? This, it's a big chiasm, right? What's the most important for chiasm? It's the middle. I said, okay, let's talk about that story. What did Jesus say that woman knew? He was about to die. Why did Jesus die? He died as a sacrifice for us. Did he stay dead? No, he was resurrected. So this is the atonement, the suffering, death, and resurrection of Jesus. That woman knew that. And I look at my children, I say, what other women do you know that knows that? And they usually say, mom or Nana. My son, well, he would often say Miss Kelly, his helper at school, his assistant. And the reason I started asking that question is in 2 Timothy, it's attributed to Paul. So in 2 Timothy, Paul is portrayed as saying to Timothy, the faith which is in you was first in your grandmother Lois and then your mother Eunice. And you know, I often say to my students, we need to find more female voices in the scripture and we need to celebrate more female faith in the church. So in this middle of this holy week, we're going to talk about women. And I always tell them, and I still get, you know, to use the Yiddish word for clamped now talking about it, their grandmothers are dead. And I tell them, Nana taught dad about Jesus. Nana was a woman of Christ. Grandma loved Jesus. Your mom loves Jesus. And that's an example of taking a scriptural text, right? Read, ponder, discuss. And in our discussion, bringing it into our lives and our homes now. And hopefully I'm doing something transformative. I raised a strong, confident daughter who's a woman of Christ. 
So you read what Jesus said and did on those days, you think about it, and then you discuss, and you come follow me, group with your friends, or if you are blessed with the family, your family, and the Spirit will guide you on how that really applies to you. Well, then you get to the longest chapters in our book, Thursday, Friday, and Sunday. We have a chapter on Saturday, but it's not as long. Think of all the things that happened on Thursday. The Last Supper. The First Lord's Supper, what we call the Sacrament of the Lord's Supper. The washing of the feet. The final discourses of Jesus, John 14 to 17, to his disciples, including the intercessory prayer. Going to Gethsemane. Praying for us in Gethsemane. Accepting the burden of our sins, our shortcomings, our sorrows, our mistakes, our weaknesses. A burden that crushed him like the olive-pressed stone out here in the Jerusalem Center Gardens crushes olives and then pressed the blood out of every pore. And then he was betrayed and arrested and dragged through this valley. And then he was falsely accused and judged by the Jewish authorities before they turned him over to the Roman authorities the next day. Now, that's what you read. You think about it. Now, let's look at all the things you can discuss. Read, ponder, discuss. And discuss what the sacrament of the Lord's Supper means to us today. Do we think about this every week, or do we just take the bread and water? When we sing those sacrament hymns, are we transported back to the things we're now walking through the text with Jesus? Do we talk about the greatest serving the least? Wow, powerful lessons you can grab. I know that there are all kinds of ordinance ritual echoes with washing of the feet. And as Latter-day Saints, we can think of initiatory ordinances, we can think of other higher ordinances. But, but the simple message that the greatest should serve the least, how powerful. If you're someone who, for whom social justice is important, what a wonderful example of what we should call servant leadership, right? What about the betrayal and the arrest of Jesus? Jesus was betrayed by one of his closest friends. Judas actively handed him over, but he was passively betrayed by his friends. They abandoned him. Every one of us has been betrayed by someone or something in our life, and we've all been abandoned. Some of us sadly have been abused. Almost all of us have been falsely judged. As you read about our Lord going through those experiences, and realizes the Doctrine and Covenant says he descended below all things so he could bear us up out of those things. Suddenly you realize there's someone who can share your pain of being a, don't want to be too biographical here, but being a fifth grader beaten up by his two best friends behind the dumps or during recess, trade and abused. And people have been abused in far worse ways. What wife betrayed by a husband or a child, betrayed by a friend or a guardian or someone they should have been trusted, can't participate with Jesus. Does that make any sense? You know, as Latter-day Saints, we often jump so quickly to the glory of Easter morning and the suffering makes us uncomfortable. My wife's a therapist and she's often shared with me that sometimes you can't just get over trauma. You have to go through it. You go through it with Jesus and it works. So those are some real life things you can do in your discussions with yourself if you're just doing it by yourself, with your friends or with your family. Good Friday, another day. We've already talked about what's so good about Good Friday. Um, once again, falsely judged, this time by the Roman authorities. Really abused, whipped, crown of thorns. Behold the man, trade, you know, presented to a jeering mob. Then crucified, suffering on the cross, according to Mark for six hours, John three hours. Mocked by those passing by. And yet, according to Luke, who's always the compassionate evangelist, 
he has time to teach a first missionary discussion while he's hanging on the cross to the thief, right? And forgive those who did this to him. We don't tend to use crosses a lot in our tradition. There's nothing wrong with it. But you know, there's one day we put up pictures of the crucifixion cross in our home and it's Good Friday. It's okay to do it for a day. Certainly okay to do it for a day. And let me tell you how this practice is developed. I remember once feeling really sad on Good Friday. And I went and I taught my Roman history class and whatever else I was teaching that day. And I thought, I wish I had just stayed home. I have never worked or taught again on Good Friday since. I don't know if I did it to you. I don't know if you had me in an evening class or day class, but I would have on my syllabus. You don't have class on Good Friday, but you have an assignment. And I would list the passion. <laughs> and I started a tradition, just a personal one, that I would read the, the, the crucifixion, the Roman trial stories and the crucifixion story, and I'd go to the temple. There's a part of that ceremony that really seems to portray the crucifixion in a powerful way. And as my children were growing, and they were in Provo and not in Pittsburgh, so it wasn't fish sticks on Friday to remind them it was a different day. I did something that was kind of bold, I guess, for Provo. I pulled my kids out of school, and we'd watch a Bible video about crucifixion. And I'd take my kids to do baptisms for the dead. And then we'd go to our na- not neighborhood, but the Provo Episcopalian Church and go to Good Friday service. I also started a tradition of fasting. One day just struck me. My Lord was thirsty on the cross. What am I doing having a milkshake? It's just a way to kind of identify with him. I felt validated during the pandemic when President Mel, remember this? He asked us to fast on Good Friday because a lot of the Christian world does that. Now, in that particular case, it was that the pandemic would be rebuked and the caregivers would be protected and a cure would be found or a vaccine or something. But, you know, we actually do have a little prophetic mandate. It's okay to fast on days other than fast Sunday. But what I did is after we finished our family fast and different activities, uh, we'd go to my son's favorite restaurant at three o'clock and go to Chili's because Sam loved Chili's. It was just a way of kind of walking through the day and helping them understand it was a holiday, not a holiday in terms of fun, but a holiday in terms of holy. And I often now teach that Good Friday has a relationship to Easter Sunday, that Christmas Eve has to Christmas morning. You can't have one without the other. And the joy of Easter Sunday is going to be so much greater if you sit with the loss and the pain on Good Friday. If that makes any sense. Um, great songs to sing. Karen Lynn Davis has written words to an old Bach tune. It appears in the sacrament hymn section of our book, or O Savior, Thou Who Wears a Crown. Great song to sing with your family on Good Friday. Behold, the great Redeemer dies. Great song to sing with your family. If you can get through it, I can get through naming the title. Upon the Cross of Calvary. Powerful. Holy Saturday is a, a day to um, in between death and resurrection. And as Latter-day Saints, we actually have some text to read there. The only thing you get in the gospel text is Matthew says they got a guard to watch the tomb. But we have section 138. So while Jesus' body was in the tomb, his spirit was alive and active and setting up the whole plan of salvation for the dead. And by the way, the Christian tradition, Christian world, traditional Christian world was not completely unaware of this. There was something called the harrowing of hell. And I've seen it in Greek Orthodox churches. Jesus goes down to hell and breaks down the gate, and sometimes the gate falls on a devil, and he pulls Adam and Eve out and all the righteous. Same characters you read about in 138. 
but I learned something from a friend I only knew online. And they, I, I will use this person's preferred pronouns, uh, they wrote a wonderful article about sitting in between. In between death and resurrection, in their case, uh, in between identities. And I thought about my grief when my mom died and the time between the death and the funeral, the funeral and the burial. And although the pain of her loss is not as great now, I'm thinking more of the happy memories. I'm sitting in between her burial and her resurrection. There are really some powerful things to experience and talk about. Even on a day like the Saturday in between. And then, of course, Easter. You probably, listeners probably already have all kinds of great Easter traditions. But read all four Gospels account. And, of course, read John 20. Not that we have a favorite Gospel. If we did, it would be John. The whole story of Mary of Magdala, right? Isn't that a powerful story? First person he shows himself to is a woman. Romans would Romans were a little bit better with gender issues than the Greeks and Jews were. The Jewish people and the Greeks at this time would not even accept a woman's testimony in court. The Romans would in some circumstances. And who does Jesus appear to? Mary of Magdala and then the other women before he shows himself to Peter and then 10 of the 11 remaining disciples and finally Thomas. And it's not just two apostles, right? The two on Emmaus, but the women were first. I mean, there's a lesson to teach there too. Mary of Magdala, I keep calling her that because Magdalene has a certain, it's freighted, right? In some traditions, she was called in the Greek and Latin traditions, the Apostola Apostolorum, which means the apostles, the apostles. Because at the end of that wonderful scene of Mary and Jesus in the garden, he says, go, he's sending her. That's what apostle means. Go and tell my brethren that I'm rising to my God and their God, my father and your father. If you're trying to raise strong, faithful, confident daughters, Mary Magdalene is there for you, right? And there are all kinds of Eastern traditions. And I I can't tell you how thrilled I was. I'm working with the district presidency here in the Holy Land, so I saw the letter, but it was out for everyone. When the first presidency asked everyone, one meeting on Easter, and it needs to be about Jesus. You know, I, I remember times when I was growing up when sometimes state conference would be on Easter Sunday. This was so remarkable, Eric, and I felt the power of the Spirit that has entered into your own your own family by connecting more deeply with these stories. And I, I think our listeners are going to be very inspired to develop some of their own traditions. You have this incredible opportunity to be in Jerusalem. What's your experience been like so far? And are there any stories that you'd want to share with people? <laughs> so I'm going to just share two quick stories. One lays out why you don't have to come to Jerusalem to have a life-changing spiritual experience. My first year here, I had a young lady whose name has escaped me. And I only remember this in broad strokes, but, but, it, but the experience stuck with me. She was really struggling. She had been here for a couple months. We had taken her to great places. She'd been to Gethsemane. She'd been to the Garden Tomb, the Holy Sepulchre. And she was just really struggling to have a, a deep spiritual witness that Jesus was her Savior. And I didn't know how to answer that. I thought we were doing everything we could. We were teaching the text. We were doing the history, but we were bearing witness. We were singing. We were praying. But I felt to say to her, I said, just be patient. You know, the Lord told Nicodemus, the Spirit blows where it will. It will come when you don't expect it. And some weeks later, she came to me tearfully and she said, I have it. I've just had the strongest witness that Jesus Christ is my Savior. 
I said, where was it? She said, the laundry room. I was doing my laundry, and as I was folding my clothes, I was reflecting on things I'd heard and done, and I felt the Spirit. And I mentioned that because you don't need to come to Jerusalem. You know, Agaria, our Spanish nun and I can do it, but not everyone can. But just like our Catholic friends can go to their parish church and do the Stations of the Cross, you can open up your Gospels wherever you are and walk with Jesus. I think everyone can have powerful, transformative, life-changing experiences if they'll just sit with the scriptures, the word of God and the spirit. But here's something I will share with you. We were in Bethlehem a few weeks ago, right before our Galilee rotation. And we go to all the traditional sites and it's hard to do devotionals in a place like the Church of the Nativity. I don't know if you've been here, Zach, but it's crowded. You're down in the grotto, the cave where you know you don't even have time to do anything. But we always take our students to the traditional shepherd's field places, which are churches. And some of them, one of them, the Catholic one has a view of the valley. But there's a place that Latter-day Saints have been coming from the early 70s, if not the late 60s. And it's this open hillside north of Bethlehem, looking across the valley at Bethlehem on a hill. And because it's, you know, undeveloped, retaining walls, olive trees, rocks, you can sit there as the sun sets and really imagine what it was like for the shepherds when the angel came. And all hundred of us came, so we have two buses, and so two teachers of each group, and we did two separate sets of devotionals. And I was with one group, and I was talking about the shepherds, what they did after the Annunciation. And they ran, and they saw Mary and the babe lying in a manger, just like they were told. But then they went and told everyone the great things the Lord had done. And I had kind of taught this before, so I went down a familiar path. I said, those, those shepherds were the first missionaries. And I want you to go from here and share your experiences with your friends and family. And some of them were getting ready for missions. Go on missions and be great missionaries. And suddenly the thought came to me that I'm sitting here with 50 BYU students. And statistically, in 10 years, uh, a frightening proportion of them may not be with us anymore. They may step away from the church for whatever reason. And I, I didn't really even think about this till the words were coming out of my mouth. I said, and the greatest missionary that you can be is to yourself. I said, I want you to write down the things you saw, heard, sang, and felt today. And we're going to give you now about 20 minutes to spread out in the hill and just write down what you're feeling and reflect about the birth of Jesus. We'd sung a couple Christmas carols, so you know it was Christmas and it was Christmas in March. And one day, if for whatever reason you find yourself separated from the rest of us, I hope that doesn't mean you're going to give up Jesus. And at some point later in your life, you'll read about the things you felt and keep your heart open. Don't close your heart all the way to the community of saints and the church. And maybe in five or 10 or 15 years, you'll want to come back. That was meaningful to me, Zach, because as a religious educator, it's just a member of the ranks. We're so concerned about keeping people in. But I'm finding in my teaching career and on again, off again in my ministry when I'm called to such positions, it seems the tighter we try to hold on to people, the more that slide through our, our grasp. And I think what we need to do is give people a solid foundation in the scriptures and in the Lord and make their memories of the church a friendly, warm, welcoming one with a door that's open so that they'll come back. 
No, all we have in the story, um, I actually have written an article about the denial of Peter because this is an issue that's had a lot of discussion in our community. In the Lucan account of it, when Jesus denies knowing Jesus or being one of his followers for the third time, Luke is the only one that says Jesus turns and looks at. And I've seen a couple really powerful um paintings, artistic renditions of this. My friend Meredith Campbell and her husband shared one with me. And of course, this is artistic license and artistic interpretation. But the look is one of some sadness, but still love. Thank you for sharing that beautiful story, Eric. When you mentioned that Jesus was betrayed twice, not only by Judas, but really he he was betrayed by his closest friends. I mean, one is they fell asleep when he asked them to stay up and support him. And then when he was arrested, you know, they, they denied knowing him multiple times in Peter's case. And yet there's no case of Jesus punishing them. As soon as they came back to him, he opened them with welcome arms. Right. And just going back to the story I just shared with you, I'm saddened when people leave our faith. But that idea of sadness but still love, see, that that's the part we really have to emulate. And, and by the way, there there is an end to that story in Shepherd's Field, Larry St. Shepherd's Field. We sent them out to just be on their own. They're spread all over the hill place, hillside. But we still want to gather together all hundred, the two classes, to sing Christmas carols. And as we were waiting, uh, the muezzins in Bethlehem started to pray for the evening call prayer for the evening prayer. And then the church bells started to ring. And one of the women told me later, she goes, oh, it's kind of bugged. I was having this quiet moment and all this musical stuff. And, she's, and the way I decided to gather everyone is I was going to start spontaneously singing. I just started singing, oh, come all you faithful, the top of my lungs. And a few of the students, the teachers knew I was going to do this. So they started singing and then they started gathering, singing, oh, come all you faithful coming together. And, and the same woman was really kind the next day. She said, you know, it was like we had our own Latter-day Saint Muezzin. We heard the, the Muslim Muezzin calling to prayer and then we had the bells calling Christians to prayer. And then we had huntsmen calling us the faithful together. But the image I had actually goes back to the, the sad part of our discussion here too, Zach, about when people leave. Oh, come all you faithful. You can come back. You can always come back. And we talked about section 138. And we don't always know the circumstances of people's understandings and when they seem to reject faith. We don't know how much of that's within their control. That's for God to judge. And the fact that there's a whole spirit life before the resurrection, before final judgments are made, a lot of time to come back. And it was so wonderful. We came together, we all gathered, and then we sing every Christmas carol left in the book. And that's how I imagine resurrection morning, as we're all coming, the faithful, from whatever directions our walks of life and faith have taken us, but we all come back when we hear the voice calling us, and we sing something happy, right? Let's sing together. Let's be joyful together. That's what our heavenly parents and Jesus Christ want. All of us home. And that's what Holy Week was about. Jesus made it possible. You know, there's a, my last thing I'll say to you, Zach, there's a tradition that they don't say Alleluia during Lent because that's a cry of joy. It's a praise of joy. 
But Easter morning, they say it for the first time since Ash Wednesday. And the priest or the pastor or the minister or your academic director of your Jerusalem Center will say, Alleluia, Christ is risen. And the response is, Alleluia, is risen indeed. That's why I love this story. Prophet Joseph Smith taught that the sacrifice, death, and resurrection of Jesus is the gospel and everything else is an appendage to that. This is our restoration heritage. I often say that Latter-day Saints should know these texts and these stories and this part of Jesus' mission better than anyone. It's not the case, but we can change that. We start with ourselves. We read, we ponder, we discuss, we visit, we participate. And I promise your listeners, it will strengthen their faith in Jesus. And in my case, Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is where I have more, most fully found him. And as I strengthen my faith in Jesus, it strengthens my commitment and dedication to his church. Well, with your help, Eric, I think we'll all become a little more acquainted with these wonderful stories and scriptures. Thank you so much for sharing your time with us today. Thank you for having me, Zach. Happy Easter. Happy Easter. All right. Thanks so much for listening. We really hope that you enjoyed this conversation with Eric Huntsman. And a big thanks to Eric for coming on the show. If Faith Matters content is resonating with you and you get the chance, we would love for you to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you listen on. We read all of the reviews and it really helps us to get the word out about Faith Matters and we appreciate the support. Thanks again for listening. And remember, you can check out more at faithmatters.org.